Hello and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar and this is The Long View, week 7. Yes, today is Monday, September 14th, exactly seven weeks to go till the election of our lifetimes. And what I'm doing every week is bringing you stories of everyday folks like me who are volunteering and trying to find ways to get involved and make a difference in this election. A couple of the things that I'm doing, um, I'm actually training people uh, who are phone banking, who are uh, making phone calls into the state of Wisconsin uh, to help voters there uh, with the process of registering for their their for the vote and getting their mail-in ballots. Uh, I'm also doing phone banking to recruit volunteers to um, uh, be poll workers and poll observers in Wisconsin and to staff a voter assistance hotline. Um, I'm also a poll worker right here in Massachusetts, and so uh, every week I'm sharing stories from my experiences in both of those things. Uh, But along the way, I'm meeting interesting people, and I'm interviewing them to get to hear their story. And so today, I actually bring you an interview with Rebecca. Uh, She is also a phone bank trainer. Um, She's actually a veteran of phone banking and has been training people on making phone calls into the state of Maine. Um, And so today I I bring you an interview where we get to meet Rebecca and to hear a little bit about her story. Let's meet Rebecca. Okay, so Rebecca, welcome to Harikats. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm so glad too. it's been uh, really good to, to get to know you a little bit through some of the conversations we had around uh, the, the recent um, activities we've been involved in with the election. Um, but uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, who are you? What do you do? Mm, well, these are especially busy days because I am an activist on a couple of fronts. I do electoral activism, which is how we connected, right, around my work with mobilizing people to phone bank for Maine, uh, phone banking because we can't canvas in person. And I also am a marshal, sometimes we're called peacekeepers, and I have spent a lot of time this summer uh, out in the streets at protests, at Black Black Lives Matter events and other events led by um, Black youth in particular, uh, to help keep people safe. And so between those two things and my job and being a mom, uh, it's been a very busy summer. Yeah. That <clears throat> it's, it's really neat that you describe yourself that way first, you know, like, uh, electoral, electoral activism and peacekeeping and then, oh yeah, there's my job and, and I'm a mom. So, um, well, the mom is so fundamental. You know, if you ask me like, what's your primary identity? I would always say mom. That just almost for me goes without saying. Um, and in my job, I teach social change. So honestly, um, I think for me, this summer has is seen a real blurring of the lines between parenting because I do a lot of the marshalling with my kids. Uh, mm-hmm. We're often out in the streets together and teaching about social change has given me a perspective of what that social change toolkit is. And I am, um, I've been pretty thoughtful, I think, about how to use the other skills and interests that I have. And for me, um, phone banking and activism, specifically in the, the realm of marshalling, seem to me to be two of the most important things I can be doing right now. Mm. Mm-hmm. And to me, they're both essential to who I am and how I think change happens. Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, I'm really curious about is, 
the lives of quote unquote everyday people. Mm. And, you know, so many of us are folks that have these multiple roles. You know, we have at least uh, those of us who are fortunate to have a job <laughs> in these yeah. times. And, um, and we should be grateful for that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so we have our sort of professional lives. Then there's sort of the, the, the personal life side, you know, who we are with our families or with our kids. Um, and then there's the, the, what are we interested in? And that's been kind of the, traditionally we've divided ourselves into work life balance and then quote unquote hobbies or interests. And now we're in these times where all of those are colliding and, and blurred. And, um, and so I'm curious to know, um, to paint a picture of, uh, your professional life as an educator, a social change educator, uh, you as a mom, and then picturing you actually uh, in these activist roles, um, and especially what what is this uh, this Marshall uh, uh, that you're describing? Uh, yeah, you know it's um, it's interesting to talk about being a Marshall because one of the fundamental values of being a Marshall is that we're there to make sure that other people's voices are heard, not ours. So mm. it's not that I'm uncomfortable talking about it, but it's not the purpose of being a marshal. It's not to talk about, oh yeah, I'm a marshal. It's to be quiet and to provide safety and protection so that marginalized voices can be centered and be heard. So to me, it's important to start with that. Um, it is a way for people, especially white people, because we're safer in these environments, um, to function in some ways, you know, there's some of it is just simple safety, you know, making sure that people know which way the march is going, or, you know, if there are potholes along the way, we keep an eye out for that kind of thing. So there's, there's a very simple, basic safety side of it, but. Actually, let me just back up a second. Um, what, what is a marshal? Like when I, when I hear the word marshal, I'm thinking like fire marshal, like, so, like a brigadier marshal. So, so what, if you've ever. If you've ever been to a protest and you see people around the peripheries wearing a neon vest, it's not the most fashionable volunteer job in the world. I can tell you that because we tend to wear neon vests um, just so that people know where we are. And so we're, we're volunteers who are trained in this. It's almost like a guild. I kind of I love this about the Marshall community. Um, and that's Marshalls train other Marshalls. And we share practices. We... Um, help each other acquire skills. We communicate, we have this informal network of, you know, like if, if an organizer needs us to come, they will tell one of us and that person might be designated like the lead marshal. And then we send the call out and, you know, people sign up and show up and we're there. And we have been various combinations of us at every single action that has happened this summer when the organizers feel like, they need help, whether with just event logistics or crowd control, or if they think there's going to be a threat of violence, whether that comes from police or counter protesters or people who are there to cause harm. And so our job is to cover everything from the basic safety of guiding a crowd along a, a march route or something like that to de-escalating crises when there's somebody there who is either disruptive or if they're there to hurt people or cause harm, our job is to get between them and, and the organizers and the protesters. Hmm. So take me through this then. Say there's a protest going on. And so if I'm just like a, 
you know, um, everyday person that's like, oh yeah, there's this Black Lives Matter protest. Um, I'm going to go show up um, to express my support for Black Lives Matter. So let's say I show up in, in my town square and there's a group of people gathered there. Um, what would a marshal be doing in that scene? In that scene, a marshal, first of all, what a marshal should always do first is make sure that they understand what the vision and goals of the organizers are, because we consider ourselves to be there at the invitation of the organizers. And our job is to amplify and uplift their, um, their vision for the event and to make sure that, um, we know how best to support them. And so we will have understood from them what uh, what kind of vibe they want. You know, is it subdued? Is it lively? What kind of threats they anticipate, if any, um, what the route is and how, well, you know, what is our role? Mm -hmm. And our role is always at their discretion. And we are never there to actually police people. We're certainly not there to police black people. Uh, we're not there. And, and if we're there for an immigrants' right, uh, immigrants' rights protest or an LGBTQ event, um, our job is there is to protect them from whatever harms they have identified. And if they choose to get in with, into it with somebody or, you know, they what, whatever they choose to do is fine. We're there to protect them and, and to uh, provide the kind of safety that, that they have requested. So, um, you asked specifically what we're doing. We might be keeping an eye on traffic. We might be providing directions. We, we're the ones who stop the traffic. Like if we're, mm -hmm. if we're on the move and we're blocking streets, mm -hmm. that's our mm -hmm. job. And we have systems and techniques that we use to do all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's often a training or something like that in advance. Um, and, and that's where people understand um, what the action is going to look like and what our role is going to be. And we do that to the best of our ability. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. So um, in, in some ways, I would see you then and, and marshals you know, on the periphery of, of the protest. There'd be maybe organizers up on on the stage. These are the, the folks that we actually might have, you know, the bullhorns or would be leading the group. They're the ones who are actually organizing the protest. But you, you would be part of the group that's on the sidelines or just keeping an eye on the, the crowd that's gathered, alerting the organizers of any, any trouble that, that you see. Well, you know, that's interesting. If we're doing our jobs well, the organizers don't know about anything until after the event, right? Like we have been tasked with the, um, the job of creating a space in which they can focus on, on what needs to be said and what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And so the responsibility of the lead or of the lead marshal mm -hmm. is, is to, to try to, to, to keep that, that barrier. I mean, sometimes things might happen where we would want to consult with the organizers to make sure we were doing things like, you know, if, if a situation arose that we hadn't discussed previously mm -hmm. and it's not obvious from our understanding of uh, their, their vision or their goals for the event, then there might be a consultation, but otherwise uh, a good event is one in which the things might be happening. You know, there might be disruptions, there might be counter protesters, but ideally the organizer should not be bothered with that because they're taking the risks. They're putting themselves out there. They're the ones who need to be focused on the event and, um, and what needs to be said there. Yeah. So that's 
I, I, you know, I must confess, like I have never noticed Marshall's. Good. At, at, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's an interesting role that you're where if, if you're doing your, your role well, people don't notice you at right. all. Yeah. It's um, not supposed to be at us. We don't talk to the media. Um, we don't talk to the police unless there is a designated police liaison. And that's, at, again, at the organizer's discretion, whether they want somebody talking to the police or not. Um, the people... You know, if, if you fell and got hurt, um, a marshal might help you get over to a medic. We also, you know, we're not the only people who do this. There are there are medics who mm -hmm. similarly have um, shared practices, and they're also volunteers. Um, there are um, legal observers who are there in the case of arrests. Um, and, you know, so it, it, there are a lot. It's, it's, I love it. I mean, there's this amazing network of people who are committed and have spent much of their time this summer um, mm -hmm. and really in the last couple of years. I mean, I first started doing this um, supporting young people uh, in, in March for our lives in, in the gun safety movement. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it's kind of this community and you see a lot of the same people, at the same events and um, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's yeah. really lovely. Despite the fact that the work is sometimes a little bit scary um, I would say that that's not the predominant feeling like, you know, theoretically it's scary, but I think there's an enormous sense of, um, commitment and connection to each other and support and respect. And, and we have the organizers backs, we have the protesters backs and we have each other's backs. Yeah. So you mentioned March for our lives. I was going to ask you, so how did you get into martial work? Um, um, I think it's mostly word of mouth. I mean, lots of times I should say when events are posted, say on Facebook, um, they'll often be a link to a sign, a, a, a signup form. And it might be, you know, can you help with sound? Can you help with transportation? Do you want to staff a booth or a table or something like that? Or do you want to marshal and help keep people safe? And so, um, I started as just in sort of an adult support and, and advisor to a number of students in March for Our Lives. And um, and then my kids are activists. And so it just kind of evolves, you know? I think you hear like maybe because of talking to me, you might say after the call, hey, Rebecca, I really I really think that's an important thing to be doing right now. And I'll say, that's fine. I'll, I'll train you and you come to the next one and I'll send you an email and hey, we need you to show up at three o'clock on Sunday and here's where. And I mean, it really is organic. I sense a recruitment pitch when I, when yeah, I hear one. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I feel like this is a really important thing to be doing right now. But I do think, you know, especially as a white person, um, I think that my ability to just show up and to be present in a way that might help other people be able to participate and speak and be heard. Um, cause now is not the time I'm, I'm talking way more about this work than I normally do, but it's not the time for white marshals voices to be centered at all. But if, if our bodies can be a part of what makes it possible for other mm -hmm. people to be heard, I, I can't think of many more important things to be doing right now in this moment in history, mm -hmm. um, than, than to be doing that. And, and I'm always grateful when organizers create a space, you know, cause mm -hmm. that's what they're doing. The organizers are creating space and welcoming us to mm -hmm. be a part of the movement in ways that they are not obliged to and um, accepting and understanding that, you know, none of us, uh, I shouldn't say none of us, there are many of us who understand that we need to be learning a lot right now and having difficult conversations, 
And I'm not always good at that. And a lot of us aren't. And yet, um, we're, we are often welcomed into this space to be a part of it and, and to support the movement by being marshals. And, and I'm grateful that, um, we're welcomed in that way. And that space is being created for us to, to make a difference right now, uh, in a way that I think we should be. So clearly I can see the connection of, um, the, the work of, uh, being a marshal uh, for helping people organizing who are organizing these protests. And given that, especially the last three, four years or so, um, have been a time of making sure people uh, can make their voices heard in this regime um, that is actively silencing so many of us. Um, so which brings me to what are we doing? What are you doing um, as you're getting involved for how to try to make a difference in this election? Um, so, so it's interesting because um, the role I play in the election is very different than the role I play as a marshal. Mm-hmm. Um, even though sometimes in, in events, I am a lead marshal, which means that I might be communicating more directly with the organizers and then conveying that to the other volunteers. Um, it's I, I consider it to be very much of a supporting role mm-hmm. and not being being a leader of a small part of it maybe, but more more just communicating and, and, and community building really is what I think the lead marshal should be doing is building community among the marshals so that they can support the vision of the, the organizers. And I really like that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, your voice is not supposed to be heard. Mm-hmm. Um we're supposed to be centering and amplifying other people on the electoral side. My role is completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get me to stop talking about my electoral activism. Uh, in fact, I don't know. You, you saw the video I made, right. About yeah. why people should phone bank. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much more comfortable in that space. Um, telling people who are privileged enough to not, um, to, to have the capacity to, to be making phone calls right now, right? Like that is um, not something that everybody is able to do. And I know not everybody's comfortable in the streets. I mean, between the risk of violence and just the discomfort, like people, it's an unfamiliar activity for some people, or it's not always happening close to you. And then there's COVID, you know, I, I get why not everybody's in the streets. Although I think that we more of us should be. And in the coming weeks, uh, and if Trump refuses to concede the election, I think we all have to be in the streets. Um, but I get that that's not everybody's jam. Um, if that's not for you, though, there is there is so much that needs to be done um, in electoral activism. Mm-hmm. And in that space, I'm pretty comfortable telling people, look, y- you can't just keep complaining about this on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Right. Now is the time. Democracy is literally, literally on the brink of extinction in our country. Like I, I can't emphasize enough how devastating it will be. I, I, I just don't think we'll be in a democracy. I don't want to say it'll be devastating to democracy. I think democracy as we know it will be over if Trump wins in November. And so I'm very comfortable telling people who are healthy, uh, who are economically stable, who have time on their hands and who are upset about this to get on the phone, mm-hmm. you know, use your voice to save democracy. Stop, stop just writing about it on Facebook or worrying about it with friends. And I, I know it's, you know, it might feel com- uncomfortable or awkward to be calling up strangers, 
But right now, it is one of the few things that you can be doing, you know, from the safety of your home, if, if, if you're, you know, your situation is such that you need to be staying home, that can make a real difference. And um, we have to be doing that in huge numbers. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, and I started a year ago, it was summer of 2019, June or July, I started doing canvassing in Maine. And it's just been going on ever since. Wow. <laughs> a time when we could actually go door to door in person. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, actually, you know, when I really started, I've, I've done this kind of stuff forever, but like my most intense work before the, the, um, the 2020 election, um, many of us from Massachusetts went up to Maine to uh, canvas for Jared Golden in the 2018 election mm-hmm. when we were really mm-hmm. desperate to flip the house. Mm-hmm. And Massachusetts folks played a very big role in um, helping Jared win. And it came down to a ranked choice voting decision. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly think, and I, I think most of the people I've worked up uh, in Maine with would say that um, Massachusetts folks played a a really necessary critical role in, in Jared Golden's election. Um, so last summer, I just was like, okay, it's time. We got to reactivate people and let's not wait until the winter to mm-hmm. be fighting Trump. Let's start building this machine now, which allowed us, and I wasn't the only one. I mean, we've got a, a number of people who work with Swing Left, uh, Greater Boston, who were part of this. Um, we started to build our machine. We were canvassing through the fall and then we switched to phone banking in the winter mm-hmm. before COVID. So mm-hmm. as, when COVID happened, a lot of people were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And we're like, well, we're just going to ramp this up because we're already doing it. That's fascinating because I think for a lot of folks, myself included, I, I just began getting involved in phone banking with Swing Left relatively recently. Um, before that, I, I've been... I'd done phone banking on and off for for several years, um, several election cycles too. But it's it's been interesting to see that during this time with COVID, um, this does provide a way for people from their homes to be able to directly contact and, and reach out to and you know be in the living rooms of of voters anywhere in the country: Wisconsin, Maine, Florida, Georgia, um, so Pennsylvania. Um, and that's, it's it's it is also inspiring for me to see so many of us, you know, quote unquote everyday people. Although you clearly are not an everyday person. No, I am an everyday person. People need to hear that. I didn't. I like I didn't start by stopping traffic for protests or making videos about phone banking. You have to start as an everyday person and build up your muscle to do this. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. I think for for a lot of folks. Uh, when they see you or hear about you, there's this feeling of like, oh, I could never do that. I could never get to that level. But you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you and- tell those people she's just a normal person just like you. She just talks more. Phone <laughs> <laughs> <Home> banking. <laughs> well, I think all of us, uh, look, I'm a storyteller. And, and in storytelling, there's this concept of main character motivating tension, but there's also supporting characters. And there's this this core philosophy I have that, you know, what would the world look like if we were all uh, supporting characters in each other's stories? That, um, and so this idea that uh, what may look to one person like some level of real high level of involvement or, or activism um, is really a way to be a supporting uh, character in the larger story of history. Um, and so thinking about that for a second of like, okay, 
So here we are seven weeks out, um, 50 days away <laughs> from the election of our lifetimes. Not that we're counting. Right. Yeah. Who's counting? <laughs> Not that I have a podcast set up where it's like counting down. Exactly. <laughs> so this, this, is, this, this episode is week seven, the long view. Um, so, so what is it? What does it feel like for you seven weeks out? If somebody from the future were to listen to this, what is it? What is it that you want would want them to know about? What's your stomach feeling right now? Do you know I can't pay attention to my stomach because I think it's really upset and anxious, and I can't. I can't. At more, it's my actually. You know what? I'm shutting down more than anything these days is my brain. Mm. Because um, if you connect the dots uh, from from day one of the Trump administration till now, and how the GOP has responded or not responded, um, and Russia's involvement, nothing that has happened so far actually makes sense unless they're willing to go all the way. Mm. You know, they have sold their souls in so many ways, and they continue to, and so my my systems thinking social change educator person with a you know uh, academic training and as a soviet uh, studies specialist um i i see a very high possibility that um there will be some kind of coup you know whether it's through suppression before the election that just you know, nullifies so many votes in so many places. I mean, look what's happening with Wisconsin and with them mm-hmm. not, you know, mailing out the ballots. Um, whether it's something like that, or whether it's it's Trump declaring, you know, these these votes don't count. I, I don't know what it's going to be, um, but I think there's a high possibility of shenanigans mm-hmm. and and violence, honestly. And I hate saying that because that's not the world I want to be in. And I sh- I have to shut that down, and and why I can is because ultimately whatever my brain's thinking, I think my heart is just what I lead with. Mm-hmm. And even if it's even if you told me, even if you said Rebecca, I have a crystal ball, and we're looking at an authoritarian takeover, I would still be doing what I'm doing, and. Part of it is maybe like that optimist that like, I I just have to believe that maybe there's some, you know, some sneaky thing that we're going to pull out at the last minute. Um, But more than that, uh, I believe deeply that you have to live your convictions and you have, you, you can't stop fighting evil. You have to fight. Mm -hmm. And you asked, you know, somebody in the future, what you'd want them to know. I would want them to know that there were people who stood up during this time to bear witness and to say, this is wrong and it is not acceptable. And I will sacrifice time and resources and whatever else I have to for the good. Like really we are fighting for decency and we're fighting for justice and you must, even when the odds are horrible. Because, and this is what you might say, well, well, why would you do that if I told you for sure you're going to lose? Because someday in the future, other people are going to have fights like this. And they're going to need to look back and mm-hmm. say, yes, people fight, even when the odds are against them. And and maybe that will inspire them. Maybe that will inspire our children to pick up the mantle and and toss off whatever authoritarian regime we end up with. Like, it's just, I know that sounds kind of like I've read too many 
YA epic, you know, adventure stories. But, you know, they're classic for a reason. They are. You yeah. know? And so yeah. that's that's what it is. So, like, what what I feel in my stomach, I'm not going to pay attention to it because it doesn't matter how bad it feels. Like, right? It doesn't matter how sick to my stomach I am. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter that there's this part of my brain that lives. So I draw systems maps, right? Like, I'm very much a visual systems thinker. And, um, you know, this is all heading in one direction. And it has mm-hmm. been from day one. So mm-hmm. I, I can't listen to my brain and I can't listen to my stomach. I just have to listen to my convictions, which tell me keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. That, you know, that, that resonates a lot with me because I think we've talked about this uh, before, but I have been ruminating on this, this, this series of episodes is called a long view based on um, Gramsci's reflection on, um, you know, optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect uh, and how so often on the left, we tend to get that exactly backward. <laughs> and there's so many folks that are optimists of the intellect and pessimists of the will. Oh, and they drive me crazy. Right. You know? And that's why the Democrats are not successful. No. no. Right? And Democrats are lousy storytellers, <laughs> for one thing. Um, um, well, that's interesting. I have to start paying attention to that. I hadn't thought about that before. But what I think, um, I think that there is this misplaced faith in data. Mm-hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I believe in data. I believe in science. I'm like, let me just be on the record here. I believe in data and science. Um, I think there's a misplaced belief that people respond to data and science and facts. And that if something makes sense to me, it will make sense to somebody else because duh, it's obvious. And if that were the case, the world would be a very different place. Right. Um, and so optimism of the intellect, well, that's lovely for you, right? Like that it makes you feel content. Like, oh, I have figured this out right? Yeah. and therefore everyone else should, yeah. right? Because it's clear to me, it's got to be clear to everybody else and things will work out because intellect rules, you know, science rules. And I think that's just a mistake Mm -hmm. because that's not how at least a certain percentage of our species works and data and facts satisfy some people, um, who need that intellectual reassurance. Um, but it's, they don't, they don't compel enough people. They don't compel everybody. Mm-hmm. So, and I also think that it gives Democrats an out. You know, I get really, really frustrated with liberal intellectuals who can tell you exactly what's wrong with this country, who can diagnose it, mm-hmm. who can, you know, quote every article they've read, can write about it on Facebook, and don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And I think. Sometimes, honestly, that, well, it's clear as day that this is how it should go. I think that sometimes it, like they use it as a, co- it's a cop out, you yeah. know, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough to understand things and to know things. Um, intellectual complacency really pisses me off. There's no, yeah. Yeah. Right? get off your ass and save yeah. the country or shut up. Right. Yeah. And that, that's I where I say that to people, by the way, but that's, what's going through my head. <laughs> right. You know, and that, that's where for me, the inspiration of the Gramscian uh, uh, take on it of, yes, you, you have to actually be pessimistic intellectually. You have to, you, you have to connect the dots and you have to 
face the what the facts tell you, which is we're headed in a really bad direction. Mm-hmm. But you can't let that cripple you. You have to have opt- optimism of the will. Yes. Um, and you have to, it's, it's, it's how you're saying, this is what your brain is telling you based on all your training, based on all the data that you have, but you're, you're leading with your heart. The, mm-hmm. the will has to lead the way. You have to do something about it. Yeah. You know, so as, as we close this, it's, there's what, what I'm left with is, is your, um, what your optimism is painting there is actually from a story perspective, um, you know, what makes stories compelling uh, is when the main characters are facing odds that seem so completely against them, you know, like, so, you know, stories of, say, knights and dragons, right? But you know, nobody goes to see a story of a knight slaying a chicken. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> that, that wouldn't be a story. That would not be a story. That might be right. a cooking show. Right. Yeah, exactly. Not, right. You it know. would not be a great epic story. Yeah. No, you, know, you, you have to then make the chicken actually be like some kind of fey beast, you know, some kind <laughs> of like fey-touched chicken in order for that to be interesting. Um, and, and so this idea that, you know... Uh, even if we were people were to, you know, crystal ball were to tell us, why are you doing this? The odds are so clearly against you. you, you there's, there's, it's hopeless that, you know, you have to, um, um, y- even because of those odds, you have to fight. And I, what I've been feeling is it's actually, especially because the odds are so against us mm-hmm. that we have to fight. Yep. You know, it's, it's especially because, this asshole put little kids in cages. Mm-hmm. You know, it's especially because this asshole, um, you know, uh, turned away people at the border. Uh, you know, it's because this asshole, uh, you know, lined his own pockets and and betrayed the the country. Um, it's especially because of all, all of those things that we have to fight. And and. Um, and he's a racist and he's a misogynist and, and, and yeah. Yeah. And, and to not do it, to not do everything we can right now betrays everybody who worked so hard. You're an immigrant. My grandparents were immigrants. Um, so many people of, of across identities, across races, across ethnic identities have worked to make our lives what they are today. And, and I, you know, there's still, there's still a lot of work to be done, right? Like the, our country is broken in so many ways that we have to fix, but there have been people who laid the groundwork so that we can continue that, right? Yeah. Improving, improving the country and, and addressing the things that we really screwed up royally along the way. So it would be a betrayal of, of all the people who sacrificed and died and fought for that in the past, but it would also be completely a betrayal of our children and future children not to show them that there were people who cared yeah. and there were mm-hmm. people who saw this and they were not willing to stand for it. And we stood up together mm-hmm. and, and we fought no matter how, you know, no, no matter how bad the odds were. Um, cause that's the legacy too. Winning is not always the legacy. It's the fighting for what's important. That is sometimes the legacy and that model. Um, because if, if we don't, if we don't win, somebody's going to at some point and let's hope that we inspire them because, you so, know, so this can be a good place to end it then is to say, okay, let's, you know, no, I, I really think that that is a good, good way to here. We are week seven. This is what's on our minds. Yeah. There's this idea that who knows what the outcome is going to be 50 days from now, but one of the interesting things is that it is that we're not 
all each on our own, you know, in a um, hopeless or isolated kind of way that in this quarantine isolation time, there's been this interesting phenomenon of people coming together from across a whole range of backgrounds and stories and, and, and um, locations. Um, and this is, these next seven weeks are going to be a time where we're going to run into people who are each motivated differently. Um, but, you know, and that's hopefully the stories that we can tell on the 51st day. <laughs> so here's looking ahead to, you know, 51 days from now. Here's and, and doing it with you and so many other people, because you know what? We're not our own knights against dragons, you know, right. by ourselves in our own armor. We are all together. And and that is, you know, beyond our convictions. The next right. thing that holds it together yeah. um, is knowing that whatever happens the day after, we'll still be side by side. That's right. Yeah. So, Rebecca, it was uh, really inspiring to hear your story and uh, really motivating as well. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Um, well, and likewise, I keep hearing about your trainings for Wisconsin and everything you're doing from friends. And, and thank you, too, because it, is, it has to be all of us doing it together. And so what I'm reflecting on from from what uh, Rebecca just shared, uh, also reminds me of something that my co-organizer for Wisconsin, Steve, mentioned in my interview with him from a couple of episodes ago, is that both Rebecca and Steve um, shared something along the lines of what they're doing and, and how they're involved is actually exactly who they are meant to be, is exactly what they feel they are meant to be doing. It's it's what's been, it's 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 uh, aligns with their motivating tensions, in very different ways. Steve, raised to be a political organizer, and he can't imagine not doing political organizing. Um, Rebecca, with a passion for social justice and change and and activism on the streets, um, and and so for both of them, there's this 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 common pattern, um, which is. Really inspiring for me because, for me, until about four weeks ago, I actually wasn't involved with any kind of concrete activity when it comes to helping out with the election. Um, and in fact, the last time that I was doing anything even remotely close to political organizing was in the lead up to the 2016 election and right afterward for about a year or so. Uh, trying to organize um, my local indivisible chapter, but but it, those were depressing, deflating, <laughs> defeating times, and um, and so their optimism and pessimism, their optimism of the will, pessimism pessimism of the intellect, is inspiring me to to keep going, as I hope it does for any of you that are listening. It's still not too late to get involved and to do something, anything to help. Um, and so what's it feel like for me right now in the pit of my stomach? I feel a little better, but it's still a long ways to go. So I hope all of us are staying human, staying dangerous, and staying tuned. Thank you. Thank you.